Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Now, murder is closer to home than you think. Today's book, Wedderburn, looks at the murders in the small rural Victorian town of the same name, Wedderburn. And the author is Mary Rose Cuskelly. Did I get that surname correct, Cuskelly? Yes, Cuskelly. Cuskelly. Right. Interesting name. I think it's kind of anglicised Irish. It was probably something like oh, well, McCuskley sure. or something. McCuskley. Sure, and we got it. So, Mary Rose, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. As the subtitle suggests of this book, this is a true tale of blood and dust. So, this mur- or these murders, because there's more than one, actually happened. What was the scenario? When it was first reported, uh, it was that Ian Jamison had killed his three neighbours one night in October 2014. At the basis of their disagreement, apparently, was the use of a dirt road and the dust that it raised. Uh, Ian's property and his house was quite close to this dirt road, that even that was what's called a paper road, so it's a... um, it's a surveyed but unpaved right-of-way and it was essentially, for all intents and purposes, it was on his neighbour, Greg Holmes' property. Greg Holmes' stepfather, who lived across the road, he would use that road to access a dam behind Greg's house because it was very dry and he would take water from the dam, use the road to go back home again for, and the water would be used to water the gardens. Ian had asked... Peter not to use the road. It would have been very dry. It was the driest spring ever, I think. And because he said it raised dust, it contaminates my water, it dirties my washing, you can use another access point that will take you maybe another 10 minutes, stop using the road. But Peter refused. And now the men had... So Peter and Ian, that was kind of where the main conflict was. And they had been friends at one stage. They'd worked together. They'd um, Ian was a builder. Peter had earth moving equipment. Um, Ian would often get Peter to do the groundwork for whenever he was building a shed. When Ian's house had burnt down at one stage, Peter had done the earthworks for all of that. So, but something had happened over the intervening years, and it had come to this point where uh, Ian walked out of his house one night with a hunting knife, walked over to Greg's place and literally a few minutes later Greg was dead and then Ian walked home, took down two guns from his gun safe and walked across the road and killed Mary and Peter. So it was this devastating crime and quite a savage crime and over something seemingly very trivial. Something very trivial indeed. So... What was the appeal of writing on a subject like this? Because it's not like you're writing a novel where uh, a crime fiction whodunit and we're, we're sort of leading towards uh, discovering who the perpetrator is. It's an open and shut case in many ways. So what was the fascination for a subject like this for you? My fascination really developed over time. I was actually, I had been researching another story that had come to a dead end and I'd, put a lot of time into that and so I was 
looking for something else to write about and my friend Wendy reminded me that her father, who lived in Wedderburn, was a good friend of Ian's. In fact, Ian had called Wally after the murders while he waited for police and said, can you, you know, I've killed Peter and Mary and Greg, would you come and look after Janice, who was his wife? And so I didn't really know what I was getting into. I just thought, oh, well, I'll have a chat to Wally and... But this makes it a more personal connection if it's a friend of yours and, and this association. Yes. And because I heard the story first through Wally, who was a friend of Ian's, thought very highly of him and... You know, uh, Wally was an elderly man. He was in his mid-80s. Ian was, you know, almost 20 years younger. And Ian kind of looked out for Wally. Wally was, a, you know, Ian was a good friend to Wally. So Wally was very much in Ian's corner. And so when I, so when I began to research the story, that was the perspective I had, that Ian was a good man who had been pushed beyond what any normal person could bear. And I suppose that was my first... Uh, so it was my first perspective and so I was interested in, well, what makes a good man do a bad thing? But... And, and then, and, like, and what made... And what was it on about that day that made this man do something so terrible? That but, was my beginning point. But it also makes you vulnerable. If you know people who are involved in this situation, if you start writing and then sort of change their opinions and such like, it places you as a writer in a very vulnerable position. Yes, and, and I was aware too that it could place Wally in a vulnerable, vulnerable position because, as you can imagine, an event like this is very divisive in a community. Well, especially in a small mm. rural community where everybody knows each other. Yes, yeah. So amazing. But this is the interesting thing, the, the nature of the people. You say the protagonists were not archetypes, but complex and flawed human beings whose motivations were clouded and whose state of mind was contested by those who knew them. So we're, you go in, we get a perception when a murder is reported and the clo case closed. We know who done it etc., and mm. we don't see any of the other elements associated with it. By going into that uh, rural town and investigating, you're starting to see the implications, the background, you're breaking down the stereotypes. And I'm reminded of um, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood and Anna Funder's Stasiland, where yeah. these individuals, these authors, went into the environment and all of a sudden, they started, where Capote was concerned, almost found an excuse, I don't that might be a bit extreme, for the murders, in as much as the murderers were victims of society. And Anna Funder talked to those who were um, in the Stasi, but they simply wanted to belong in some way. So there was a justification uh, for, in in some ways, or a rationalisation yeah. for actions, um, were you expecting to find anything other, or what were you looking for? Look, I didn't expect to find a justification for what Ian did. I mean, I don't think you can ever justify killing three people that way. So I wasn't expecting 
to exonerate in or anything like that. I just was curious and about what could have driven him to this. And also it became clear that, you know, Peter himself was quite a divisive figure in the community. You know, he was, you know, he was, his neighbours who I spoke to loved him, you know, but they would still describe him as a stirrer. You know, Peter liked to, he loved an argument, wouldn't back down from a confrontation, but, you know, he was loyal, he was intelligent. Well, this is the interesting thing about the profiles of these individuals that you've got here. You've already started mentioning about Ian Jamison, and he was a, a stickler for detail mm. in many ways. So that could have been a factor in uh, his makeup. Peter Lockhart is fascinating um, because there were, uh, well, there's a background story with Peter and Mary. Yes. Uh, would you care to highlight some of that? Well, it was, it was both their second marriages. And Peter was came from what is known in Wedderburn as a pioneer family. Like his family had been there something like seven generations. And so, you know, a local, a local local. Uh, and But he had, when he had begun his relationship with Mary and ended his first marriage, that was seen by his own family as kind of disgraceful. And in fact, he wasn't in touch with any of his children. No, he, there was a, a lot of estrangement in that family. And I think that, you know, people who I spoke to said that was, you know, a source of great and continuing sadness for him. But Mary had five children and he lavished, you know, he and they in some way became a, a substitute family. Well, they were a substitute family for him. His, so um, they accepted him as part of their family. As far as they were concerned, Peter was their, part of but their family. But even there, there was innuendo in, in some of what was um, going on there. Yes. And I think... I say later in the book that it was to me it seemed like Peter had become this kind of scapegoat in the community, that nothing was too terrible to ascribe to his character. And well, that that speaks. And, yeah, and, I, and and Peter, I think, because of the sort of person he was, he was not going to try and improve that impression of him. He was just going to carry on doing what he was doing and how he did it and he would not try and ingratiate himself with anybody. But that speaks then also to small communities and the attitudes and perceptions and stories they tell each other. It's almost incestuous uh, in, in that regard, that, that the nature of uh, the stories that are made up about people, the rumours that go around within a closed isolated community. Yeah. And I think it also I think it can also happen within um you know with you know like you know I live in Melbourne, it's a very big city, but I have a particular community that I live in and you know there's there are tensions and rumors and flare-ups that happen, you know, mm. in inner city Melbourne as well. I mean, nothing that I've witnessed as terrible as this, but you know I think that we all have that capacity for darkness. And but to what extent? And that, that's the fascination because are we all capable of such a degree of darkness? 
um, to, to go to such extent to such an extent? I suspect we are. I suspect all of us are. Which makes one of the reasons why we keep wanting to read this book or, or maintain and find out and work towards the end, not a, a not a who done it, but we're, we're still looking in some ways hmm. for our own. Uh, psychology, whether we are capable of such things. But but back to the characters, you've got Gregory Holmes as well. Yeah. He's Mary's son, uh, returned veteran, PTSD. Yeah, yeah. So... And, and once again, this is one of the things that also fascinated me. There was these, you know, these two, these conflicting reports people would, would you know, uh, conflicting reports of, of the characters of these people, like to Greg's family, his partner... He was, yes, you know, he was struggling with the aftermath of being in those, you know, Afghanistan, those terrible situations. But, you know, gentle, loving, trying to get on with his life. You know, um, very, like, his partner, Lynn, said he was the most, like, the most gentle, caring person in her life. And... His family too, his brothers and sisters, you know, were saying, you know, for he, that, you know, he was their little brother, and that's how they saw him. While other people in the community, there was these stories about, you know, um, that you know Greg was a bit of a hard nut, and a, you know, he was a bit difficult to handle. But, you know, others said no, that wasn't the case at all. So you get these very conflicting reports of people, and it, it's and part of the. Trying to reconcile those is very difficult. Like with, you know, Ian, you know, he was really generous to Wally, his friends, Anna and Gordon, you know, he was generous, would do anything for you, wonderful man, a beautiful friend. So what drives somebody? And and we can never answer that. You've also got Mary Lockhart in there, uh, loves glass. <laughs> yeah, Mary, a great collector. Keen gardener, avid bird watcher. It's so simple. It's so mundane in mm. many ways that then somebody with such, um, you know, simple interests could be then the victim of such a horrendous crime. Yeah, it's yeah. it's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, but then the repercussions then extend beyond the murder, and this is what happens when you go in and explore because you have that Wedderburn community. There are a few eccentric. People in Wedderburn. Eccentric is one way way of describing it, but I just, you know, what I'm continually reminded of is when you start talking to people, they they, they become, you know, they're just people and they have their own particular... Well, they have a diversity of interests. I mean, there's one couple, a neighbouring couple, um, Jackie and... And Paul. Paul. And and Jackie's a sort of, well, white witch, yoga, a bit of everything. Uh, Yeah, so Jackie has, you know, she practices Reiki. She has, you know, kind of the realm of the spiritual is very important to her. And her partner? And her partner is an ex-outlaw... Bikey. Biker. Who, you know, adores his wife and tells a great story. But they and and they and that was and they were very close to Peter and Mary and were just and were just devastated by what happened to them. And that was the other thing, you know, because Peter had this reputation as being kind of conservative, this redneck, but yet perfectly happy to, to accept- be to be friends with Yeah. 
you know, the, the so-called white witch and and one of the for first things husband. one of the first things you do with this um, book is the interview of uh, Anna and Gordon McMarin, and their comment is he's not this man, mm. as in they were friends with Ian, and it they're having great difficulty reconciling the man they knew with the person who committed such an horrendous crime. Yeah. And that speaks to many of us. Or there's a fear there in as much as are we able to actually truly recognise, know somebody, hmm. is our judgement in question. Well, there's this notion, you know, which Anna and Gordon speak of, you know, Ian snapped. And that's quite a common... You know, people use that expression a lot. You know, I just snapped. And I guess, do we all have that point where suddenly we lose control of ourselves or is it that we lose control of ourselves or are we pushed too far? And this notion of can we be pushed beyond that? But And I guess that's what I was... That's what I struggled with as well, this idea. Like, you know, Ian wasn't, you know, he had never been in trouble with the law before. This wasn't, you know, he wasn't someone who, you know, had been had been committed, you know, had been charged with violent crimes in the past. So this notion that we can be pushed to a breaking point. And I was, there's... I was doing, you know, I did a little bit of research into, you know, murder and masculinity and violence and that sort of thing. And there is this notion, you know, I think murder is, masculinity is a factor in, in lots of murders. And this notion, this, con, this kind of confrontational. Well, I, I want to go into that then mm. because that's very interesting because you, Ian and um, uh, Peter are very strong characters. I mean, it's the alpha male type. Syndrome, yeah. but this notion of conquest, this notion of um, dominance, uh, of getting your way, and such like, um, can we can we escape uh, nature in in that regard? Because, mm. or are they victims of their makeup? Yeah, I don't know. There's, you know, it's that term, you know, toxic masculinity. Like it's almost becoming a cliche, but I and I don't know whether. I think there was something in that, that there's something about this, about a, a masculine notion of honour and respect. And, you know, some of the reading I was doing around murder was saying, you know, the most effective way to make, to push someone to violence is to insult them, is to, you know, kind of lower themselves, no, to, to, to lower themselves in their own eyes and in yours. And so I think... And the more I kind of thought about it, I think there may have been an element of Ian trying to regain some notion of status, that that he had lost power and that he was trying to regain that somehow. Status and control over his own situation. But it, in many ways, it's an artificial perception of, I've lost control of this situation. Well, were you ever in control in the first mm. place? It's mm. it's an all an artificial concept for a lot of these people as well. Yeah. But you also go into... Um, 
the notion of homicide. Homicide is a dynamic relationship between two or more persons caught up in a life drama where they operate in a direct interactional relationship, wrote Marvin E. Wolfgang in his seminal 1958 work, Patterns in Criminal uh, Homicide. Wolfgang, a criminologist, argued that examining the relationship between a murderer and his or her victim was crucial to understanding the event. Mm. So it's it's not just the psychology of the individual, it's that interaction that is toxic, if we can yes. use that word again. Yes. Whereas if they were in another situation or if a safety valve had been released, it would have been a totally different outcome. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's quite extraordinary that, that the psychological notion, again, trying to look for an answer to all of this... Um, so is this what compels the story or this uh, book in terms of us wanting to find a rationalisation? Because there are the, the members of the community are trying to rationalise. Is it about dust? What is it about? Mm. Um, we keep constantly wanting to sort of tie the end up of the circle to make it all right. Is there an all right in, in that outlook? Look, I... I don't know that we can ever say, okay, so this is this is what happened, this is why it happened. If we just do this, it'll never happen again. I don't think that's possible. And in some ways, it, I didn't, I didn't really expect there to be this easy answer because I think all of us are complex people, and there are like, you know, on on that night, you know. The, that night, you know, Peter had, in the afternoon before that night, Peter had driven up and down that um, that road, but there'd be no interaction between Ian and him. Why did Ian go up to Greg's place first when it was Peter he was so furious How was with? Ian able to overcome Greg, who, Greg, trained, combatant, hmm. knifed, um, etc. And I think we'll let the listener read that um, the the description of the injuries yeah. for themselves, but um, Greg was younger. Uh, how was um, Ian able to overpower him? Yeah. It's all and and the horrific nature of of the gunshots. Hmm. Um, it's quite extraordinary. Um, how? Here's another question though, because we've got this ripple effect: a murder but it goes beyond into the community. Um, people reconciling, trying to work out. How do you reconcile the narrator's voice in all of this? Um, because you never were able to interview Ian and your knowledge of the players in many ways is indirect. But also then, writing a book adds to that ripple effect. It does, yes. So how do you reconcile the writer and the writer's role in mm. taking on such a task? It, it, it is tricky and it's something that has been a lot on my mind as as I wrote it, but more specifically once publication was, you know, on the horizon. And I did, you know, I did and, and continue a little bit to struggle with it. I mean, I think my publisher at one point I was like, oh, what have I done in writing this book? And she was saying, no, it's, these stories are important because compelling narratives you know they help us to empathize you know people i think it is useful to remind people how 
lives are upended by violence and tragedy and to know that those people who are in, who get caught up, they're not just statistics. They are our neighbours, our friends, our families. But is it legitimate for a writer to enter that discourse in some ways? Um, because it's not... It, it's real. Mm. Now, because there was a controversy about the cover. I didn't see anything uh, controversial in it, mm. but I'm an outsider. But the Blue Wren, for example, on the cover and the knife and the gun and such like... What happened there? Well, the blue rain is a symbol of Mary, who was one of the victims. Um, and in fact, and so I didn't have input into the design of the cover, but I saw the cover before it went out. And like you, I didn't see the potential for the distress that it might cause. But for Mary's family, who, this, you know, the, the wren was a symbol for their mother, it was very jarring. Well, it was more than jarring. It was very distressing. And that was so when something does go out in the public realm like that and suddenly you, you know, discover yeah, something that you hadn't considered. So, yeah, so that was I acknowledge that there was a real hurt there. Um, so I but think... It's, it's uh, almost out of your control because, yeah, as the, the design by the publisher, it's taken over. The story yeah. is now owned by somebody else. That's right. It's kind ways. of, yes. So, yeah, no, it's it's difficult. But at, at the same time, like I'm a, as people who have, people would probably, who read the book would probably see that I, you know, I'm a big fan of Helen Garner's work as well and she often delves into this mm. kind of dark territory. And, you know, I've, she has written, you know, if... If every writer had to, I mean, I'm paraphrasing her, obviously, but, you know, if every writer had to defend their writing, then nothing would ever get written. So I think there is a certain amount of that. You can't, you know, writers will write. And and also I think a book like this, it can contribute to the conversations that we are already having in our society about toxic masculinity, which we touched on before, about this kind of source of, like, what's the source of rage that we see on our roads, on social media, in our homes? You know, how do we help people recover from trauma? So I think books like this can contribute that way. There's another element, and we've only got a short time left, and that, in many ways, is the ongoing psychology of Ian and because there's the trial uh, that takes place Ian has confessed um, I did it I snapped uh, he is organized he rings friends says take care of my wife and and that is a fractious relationship anyway with his wife or a broken one etc but it's almost like another psychological episode because in in the trial where he sort of is almost resigned uh, but then fights the charge and, and such like how do you interpret that yeah that was actually one of the th once I started attending the court proceedings that I was completely intrigued by that question because when Ian first committed the murders he called police he said yeah I've done it you, sh you know I should be locked up but then once it came to the um, court proceedings, he seemed determined to disrupt and derail it. So he changed teams of lawyers, he changed his plea, he appealed, he did this, you know, he tried to introduce new evidence. And I, 
Like, and, and because, you know, I can't see into Ian's mind, all I could do was observe him and it, and, and try and think about what my reaction, if I did something so terrible, how would I continue to live with myself? How would I continue to think of myself? But as in some real, ways you've got to justify you it have to to, just, in order to be able to continue living because yes, if you admit to it, then you are destroyed. Yes. And so... It's, That's just my own feeling on it, that yeah. for Ian to accept what he had done and responsibility was in some way to destroy his own idea yeah. of himself. The book is Wedderburn, A True Tale of Blood and Dust. The author, Mary Rose Cuskelly, and it's an Alan and Unwin publication. So, Mary Rose, thank you for coming in today. Thanks very much, David.